I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Miss. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I pick one extra famous day from history and tell you just a little about that day, and then I look through old newspapers to tell you what else was making headlines on the exact same day. It's a great way of seeing how things fit together on a timeline. Today's famous day is one that many of you will remember. I know I do, even though I was really young at the time. As you can probably tell by this podcast, I've always had a fascination with the news even as a child, and I credit my parents for always having newspapers available and for watching the news in the background. I remember in a high school class where we studied current events and history that I knew a lot of the stuff before it was actually taught because I liked to read, and I was sometimes surprised that not everyone knew the same things. Anyway, tomorrow marks the 33rd anniversary of today's featured date, November 9th, 1989. Although this event was a huge world event, very few newspapers printed about it on the 9th. The 10th has papers all over the country, all over the world, with huge front page headlines announcing it. One paper that caught the news on the 9th was the Daily Sentinel out of Sitka, Alaska. Their headline says, East Germany to let citizens travel freely. Friends, November 9th, 1989 was the day the Berlin Wall started to come down. The wall dividing East and West Berlin had been in place for almost 30 years at that point, having been erected in 1961. When the wall went up, literally overnight, families and friends were divided. Almost 200 people died trying to cross the wall from the East to the West. But at least 5,000 people did make it. They climbed over the barbed wire, flew in hot air balloons, crawled through the sewers, drove through unfortified parts of the wall at high speeds, and climbed out windows of buildings that stood on the border. When the government made the announcement on November 9th that they were going to let people travel back and forth between the East and West, as long as they had visas and followed the rules, East Berliners were in shock. They couldn't believe the moment they'd been hoping and praying for had finally come true. At first, after the announcement was made, activity around the wall was calm and quiet. But that didn't last long, and by night's end, people were crowding around the Brandenburg Gate, chanting, Open the gate! Open the gate! Soon, people began arriving with hammers and picks and started to chip away at the wall. Although the leaders hadn't meant that they were literally going to tear the wall down, that's what happened. People began flowing into West Berlin and West Germany, and there were many, many great reunions between family and friends who hadn't seen each other for decades. In the first weekend after the wall came down, two million people from East Berlin visited West Berlin. According to History.com, one journalist called it the greatest street party in the history of the world. Those are the images I remember watching as a young elementary-aged child. Soon, the picks and the hammers used on the walls turned into bulldozers and cranes, and people carted the pieces of the wall away. Now, I've been to Germany a couple of times, and I love it there, and I love talking about it, but this podcast isn't just about the most famous dates. It's about what was hiding behind the big headlines. So, instead of continuing to talk about it, I'll post a video of the ABC News coverage with Peter Jennings, 
from the day after the walls started to come down. In the additional history headlines, you probably missed Facebook group. And now, let's find out what else was being reported the day a little old wall fell. For today's first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Anniston Star out of Anniston, Alabama. This November 9th, 1989 edition has a headline accompanied by a huge cartoon picture, and that's what first caught my eye. The headline says, Abused Child Lost in Fifth Amendment Issue. The article is accompanied by a drawing that's basically a political cartoon, which isn't surprising because this article is about a case that was a pretty big deal back then, and sadly, one of the reasons I wanted to make it one of today's additional history stories is because it reeks of a similar case that's been making national news for almost two years now. This article tells the story of Jacqueline Boaknight. Jacqueline was a 23-year-old single mother living in Baltimore, Maryland. When she was growing up, she was considered, quote, a child in need of assistance by the Department of Social Services. She had some learning disabilities, she had some emotional problems, and she was a habitual drug user. Jacqueline had a son named Maurice Miles, who at the time of the article was three years old. But for Jacqueline and Maurice, their story had been going on for years. It all started in November of 1986, when Maurice was only about a month old. He was hospitalized with a type of pneumonia. I'm sure the hospital employees weren't too concerned at first because, unfortunately, babies get sick, and it was fall when diseases started to become more prevalent. But just a couple of months later, in January of 1987, little Maurice was back in the hospital again, that time with a broken leg. When the hospital did x-rays on him, they discovered that he had multiple partially healed fractures assigned to doctors that a child might be experiencing child abuse. While at the hospital getting treatment for the broken leg, hospital personnel saw Jacqueline shake Maurice and throw him into his crib, ignoring the fact that the baby had a cast on his leg. That was the last straw, and the hospital called the Department of Social Services. Custody was turned over to them, and when Maurice left the hospital, he went into foster care instead of back into the care of his mother. Not a lot is said about Maurice's father, Terrence Miles, but it did say that he'd recently been released from jail for distributing cocaine. Maurice stayed in foster care until July of 1987, before being returned to his mother, Jacqueline. She'd been working with the Department of Social Services and ensured them that she would take parenting classes, she'd go to therapy, she would use a parent aid, which the department was even willing to provide, and most importantly, she would no longer physically punish little Maurice. Almost an entire year passed, and it's not clear whether or not social services had been making regular visits to Jacqueline and Maurice or not. Depending on the source, the information varies. During that year, Maurice's father, Terrence, was shot and killed in a drug incident and was no longer in the picture. But in April of 1988, the department did check in on them. And it turned out, Maurice wasn't at home at the time. Jacqueline told him that he was staying with her aunt, but she wouldn't disclose any more information. She wouldn't tell them where this supposed aunt lived or anything about Maurice. The department did a little digging, 
and it turned out that Jacqueline hadn't been attending the parenting classes she'd promised to go to, and she was using drugs again. So, DSS went back to court, and it was determined that she had to tell them where Maurice was, or else she would be held in contempt of court. When they arrested her, she told them that Maurice was living with her sister and that they were in Dallas, Texas. The police followed through, made some calls, and guess what? The sister denied having Maurice and didn't know where he was. Jacqueline was thrown in jail and told that she would stay there until she produced Maurice. If any of this story sounds familiar to you, it might be because of the Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow Daybell case that's been in the news for the last two years. I don't want to go into detail about that case because it's still going on, and this is a history podcast. But their case started in a similar way to Jacqueline's when the couple refused to give up the location of Lori's children. The couple insisted they were staying with friends or family, but wouldn't give names of the friends and family they were supposedly staying with. Then, last summer, the bodies of Lori's children were found buried in Chad's backyard. Anyway, back to Jacqueline. She was given a defense team, provided by the Baltimore Public Defender's Office, and they argued that Jacqueline didn't need to give information about the whereabouts of her son. They cited the Fifth Amendment and said it was in place to protect her from giving the information that might be self-incriminating. In December of 1988, her case went to appeals, and they agreed that her Fifth Amendment rights were being violated, and that judge ordered her to be released from jail. Jacqueline went free, and as of the article writing in November of 1989, Maurice was still missing. Her case had been appealed again by the state, and it was being heard by the Supreme Court. People all over the nation were waiting to hear what the ruling would be. Many feared that if the court ruled in Jacqueline's favor, other parents might try the same tactic, and abused kids would be lost all over. Others feared that social services would be too scared to give kids back to parents who might have a relapse, and kids would end up remaining in the foster care system indefinitely. It was argued that a parent shouldn't be allowed to use the Fifth Amendment as a weapon, and that the Constitution shouldn't be a barrier to saving the life of a child. It was also argued that people can be ordered to stand in a police lineup, or give a handwriting sample, or give a blood sample, and that those things aren't protected by the Fifth Amendment even though they could be self-incriminating, so giving the location of a child shouldn't be protected either. Friends, this is the kind of case that makes me glad I'm not a lawyer or a judge. I couldn't handle it. The prosecution's team argued that the Fifth Amendment shouldn't apply in Maurice and Jacqueline's case because she voluntarily made an agreement with them about the conditions she needed to meet to have Maurice return to her, including that she would let them check in on Maurice when they requested. So. What did the Supreme Court decide? They finally made their decision in February of 1990. Maurice hadn't been seen for at least two years at this point, and they ruled that Jacqueline couldn't hide behind the Fifth Amendment and ordered her to tell them where Maurice was. But Jacqueline didn't obey. She told them that she would rather go to prison than tell the location of her son. Her reasoning was that she knew he'd be taken from her, and she didn't want him back in the foster care system. So, Jacqueline went to jail, and she stayed behind bars for a total of seven years before being released on October 31, 1995. The judge issuing her release ordered her not to have any contact with her son, both physically and otherwise. 
Despite all those asking for an answer, all Jacqueline would say at that point was that Maurice was living with a childhood friend of hers named Rachel Anderson in North Carolina, and that Rachel was hiding him so that he wouldn't go into the foster care system. Jacqueline also said that she'd talked to him on the phone in the early 90s, but then phone access was restricted in the jail, and she couldn't talk to him anymore. But she did receive at least 12 letters from him, but those stopped arriving in 1992, three years before she was released. Jacqueline provided a few specific details about her friend Rachel, but the prosecutors, even with the help of Baltimore detectives, couldn't find any evidence that this Rachel existed. They checked motor vehicle records and school records and foster care records, but they couldn't find anything. Some people believed that Jacqueline had sold her baby and that he was indeed being raised by someone else, and that maybe she really was getting updates on him from that person, just none of it was legal. Some people believed Jacqueline and said that no mother could show more love than being willing to spend seven and a half years in jail to protect her child. Some went so far as to compare her to Martin Luther King Jr. Other people were convinced that poor little Maurice had died and that she was basically getting away with murder. In an interview, Jacqueline said, quote, If I had to do it all over again, I would. If I had to stay 25 years, I would have stayed 25 years to protect my son. The last big article I read about her case was printed in 2004. Jacqueline told reporters then that she'd met in person with her son a few times a year since she'd been released and that he was doing good. Maurice would be turning 18 years old later that year, and people wondered if his whereabouts would be made known once he was no longer a minor and the threat of being placed in foster care was gone. His birthday came and went, and still Maurice Miles remained missing, or hidden, or dead. It's now 2021, and to this day, there has been no official word on where Maurice Miles is, or if he is even still alive. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Orlando Sentinel out of Florida. The headline says, A Twisted Tale of Murder for Hire shakes up Daytona. You knew I'd have at least one murder story because I always do, right? Well, this article is about the attempted murder of Lisa Fotopoulos. She was well known in the Greek community of the area and was a daughter of Augustine Paspalakis. Augustine had come to the United States as an immigrant from Greece. He was chasing the American dream. Augustine put forth every effort to be successful even working day in and day out, seven days a week, and according to his children, he even worked on holidays, because he wanted to make enough money that he could pass it on to his children and they wouldn't have to work quite as hard as he had. Luckily, Augustine was able to purchase some land on the boardwalk in Daytona in the 1960s, and he started a successful business. That success turned into him owning multiple businesses, and he soon became wealthy. He passed away at the age of 64, exactly two years before this article was written. He left his fortune to his daughter Lisa and his son Dino and their mother. Constantinos Fotopoulos came to the United States from Greece to attend college. That's when he met Lisa. The pair fell in love 
and were married just a few months later. I believe he proposed to her after they'd only been dating for a month. The couple continued to work for Lisa's family in the beginning, but then Constantinos opened the pool hall on the boardwalk, against Lisa's wishes, and she wasn't exactly happy with the friends he was making. Constantinos had a unique hobby, too. He would dress up in camouflage and call himself a commando assassin. He liked to collect weapons, like pistols and rifles and grenades, and he'd dress up and hide the weapons in the woods. Lisa knew about his behavior, but chalked it up to a hobby of her husband's and didn't worry too much about it. She said he even had to rent a metal detector once because he forgot where he buried some of his weapons. But then things started going south in the couple's marriage, and Lisa realized that she loved Constantinos a lot more than he loved her. Someone told her he was having an affair, so one night she followed him. She chased him down and found his BMW parked at the home of the woman she was afraid he'd been seeing. Lisa wanted no part in an affair and soon began talking about divorce. Fast forward to November 1989, the month the Berlin Wall came down, and Lisa is working at the Joyland Amusement Center on the boardwalk. It was one of her family's businesses. Suddenly, a man she described as a black man between the age of 20 and 25, weighing around 140 pounds and standing about 5 feet 10 inches tall, came into the store and pulled out a gun. The man attacked her, but Lisa managed to get away. Then, just a few days later, a man climbed up the side of the Paspalakis' large riverfront home and cut through a second-story window with a glass cutter. It was one of the few windows in the home that wasn't wired to their alarm system. The intruder then walked past two other bedroom doors, one belonging to Lisa's mother and the other belonging to her brother. Then he walked up another flight of stairs to the third floor and into the bedroom Lisa shared with Constantinos. On the way to their room, the intruder had passed a lot of expensive things, including high-end stereo equipment, but he didn't take anything. Instead, he entered the couple's room and shot Lisa one time. Constantinos jumped into action and shot the intruder multiple times. The man went down. He was dead. When police arrived and began to assess the situation and ask questions and investigate, they soon realized that things didn't quite add up. How would a thief know exactly where to go in a house unless he'd been there before? And how would he know how to bypass the alarm system? And why had Lisa been attacked more than one time in a matter of just a few days? It smelled fishy to the investigators, and soon a story came out that was absolutely crazy. Constantinos, Lisa's husband, who supposedly loved her, wanted her dead. He wanted Lisa's share of her father's wealth to himself, and then some. So, he hired a hitman to go into the store where she was working and kill her. That man turned out to be 22-year-old Taja James. He told police that he'd been offered $10,000 by Constantinos to kill Lisa. When he failed at the job, Constantinos turned to the woman he'd been having an affair with, 20-year-old Deidre Hunt. Deidre had been charged with the murder in New Hampshire the year before, but she'd been able to plea bargain and the charges were reduced. She made her way down to Daytona and was a regular on the boardwalk, which is how Constantinos came to get to know her. 
She told him that she'd find a competent hitman for him since she had contacts amongst the street criminals that he didn't have. It was Deidre's searching that eventually led to the unraveling of the story, because two different men went to the police when they heard that Lisa had been shot and confessed that they too had been approached and offered ten grand to kill her. Unfortunately for Brian Chase, he was the unlucky one who agreed to the offer, snuck into the family's home, shot Lisa, and then was killed by Constantinos, so the husband could make the death look like it was done in self-defense. When Tasia James was questioned, he told police that Constantinos had already come to him again and said that he needed to try one more time to kill his wife since she was in the intensive care unit and hadn't actually died when Brian Chase shot her. The man would not give up. When everyone was arrested and everyone started talking and ratting each other out, the story became even worse than the police initially thought. Yes, there had been two attempts on Lisa's life made by her husband, but before either of those attempts happened, Constantinos and Deidre had kidnapped an 18-year-old boy, taken him out into the woods, tied him to a tree, and then used him as target practice. Police followed up on the bizarre tale and went into the woods in search of evidence. Sure enough, Right where Deidre had said he would be was the badly decomposed body of the 18-year-old boy, still tied to the tree many days later. At first, there was no explanation as to why they would do such a horrible thing, but it later came out that it was an initiation of sorts for Deidre to be part of Constantinos' hunter-killer club. He even gave her a beret afterward to signify her membership, and she was told it would get the HK insignia after she hunted someone down. They videotaped the entire murder. I know, it's awful. With all of the craziness, the police were even starting to wonder if they should exhume Augustine, Lisa's father, just to make sure that he'd actually died of a brain aneurysm and not something having to do with Constantinos. You see, someone else came forward and said that Constantinos had offered them $50,000 to kill Augustine when he was alive and that after Augustine died, Constantinos bragged that he'd had him killed. Then someone else said they'd been offered $20,000 in silver to kill Lisa's brother Dino, and they'd been offered 80000 in cash and 40000 in jewelry to kill Mary, Lisa's mother. The more the police dug, the more they uncovered, including the fact that Constantinos had been running a $100,000 counterfeiting scheme, and that there'd been even more failed attempts on Lisa's life with a lot more people being involved. Friends, I have only told a small, minuscule fraction of what came out during the months and years following this incident. Believe me, there is so much more that I could tell you about this case, but it would fill an entire series of podcast episodes. And yes, there have been books written about the incident, as well as television shows. So rather than go on and on and on, only to confuse you by not having enough time to give all of the important details, I'll end by telling you how the trials ended. Deidre Hunt was found guilty and sentenced to death in 1990, but then in 1998, that sentence was changed to two life sentences. She's still alive. Constantinos was found guilty and given a death sentence, although he's still alive and has now been in prison for 31 years. As far as Lisa goes, she survived her horrible ordeal and was able to return to work a short time later. 
She eventually remarried and was able to find happiness. As of 2020, she was still working on the Daytona boardwalk. For my last additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Daily Sentinel out of Grand Junction, Colorado. Although, once again, I could have taken a similar article from hundreds of newspapers that day. This headline says, Ferry limps to port after deadly crash. This story caught my attention for a couple of reasons. First, it involves West Germany. And second of all, it was talking about a big freighter ship. And those have been in the news a lot in current times because of issues with getting everything unloaded and distributed. But I won't go into that. In this case, a Danish ferry had left Hamburg in West Germany and was headed to Harwich, England. There were more than 370 passenger and crew members on board. While out to sea, the ferry was suddenly hit from behind by a huge freighter. If you've ever seen the big ships carrying stacks of cargo containers up close, you'll know just how big these things can be. The collision created a 60-foot-wide gash in the ferry, right where the dance lounge was located, and much of that lounge was destroyed. In a twist of fate, the conductor of the ship's van had suddenly gotten sick, so he delayed their performance by half an hour. Because of that, the dance lounge was mostly empty at the time of the impact with the freighter. One man interviewed said, I was in the lounge just having a drink. The next thing we knew, we were flying through the air and tables and chairs and glass were flying about. There was a lot of panic. Pieces of the dance lounge were hanging off the ferry and the ferry's cocktail chairs were strewn about the deck of the freighter. Both ships were able to stay afloat and the ferry limped back to port in West Germany. But there were casualties. Three people lost their lives, and more than a dozen more were injured. Many of them had to be taken off the ferry by helicopter for treatment. So, why did the ferry and the freighter crash in the first place? That was definitely the question everyone wanted answered. It seemed that, although it was a bit stormy, visibility was excellent and not a factor. And it came out that the Coast Guard sent a warning to both ships about 10 minutes before they crashed into each other, warning them that they were in danger and needed to change their course because they were following the same path. Although I couldn't find much follow-up on the incident, I'm guessing a few people were in big trouble. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from The Signal out of Santa Clarita, California. This advertisement is perfect for anyone who loves comfort food. Growing up, we often had Campbell's tomato soup along with grilled cheese sandwiches. It was the perfect meal on a cold day or when dinner needed to be made in a hurry. If there wasn't enough time for the grilled cheese sandwiches, saltine crackers were a great substitution. I know I'm not the only person that grew up on the mill, and it's a mill that I've continued with my own family. On November 9th, 1989, you could buy a box of Nabisco Premium Saltine Crackers from Hughes Market for just 89 cents a box. And you could buy Campbell's Tomato Soup for just 25 cents a can. I think I know what I'm having for dinner tonight. Friends, thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. Do you remember watching the footage of the Berlin Wall coming down? 
Is it cemented in your brain like it is in mine? Join me this Thursday for a new mini-episode where I look at a special group of veterans in honor of Veterans Day. Then I'll be back again on Monday with a very unique famous day from more than a century ago. Talk to you later.